Please open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1. This morning we will dive into the first section of the book of Habakkuk. We'll be going through this over about another four or five weeks. We did our introduction last week and we will begin um, this morning by looking at verses 2 through 11. I'd like to begin our time by reading verses 2 to 11 and then having a word of prayer. Habakkuk chapter 1. Verses 2 to 11. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and will you not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Lord God, as we read, this challenging passage, as we read about one of your prophets expressing his anguish, his grief, his confusion to you, and the challenging nature of your reply, I pray that we might see you to be greater, mightier, more powerful, more wise, and that we might know that you care but also know that your ways are not our ways, that we might commit ourselves to you as a faithful God and creator, and that we would lift up our prayers to you and trust that you will do what is right. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Habakkuk um, deals with grief and issues over the problem of evil, evil in the society around us, what you might call social evil, um, there's really two truths. We're going to look at two points this morning. Two truths I think we can get from this. I pointed out last week that we are not national Israel. This is not our history. Um, it's ours and that it's been written for us and given to us. But the nation of Israel standing before God in a covenant is unique. I plan on actually dealing with some of what I said last week about that in my ABF this week um, to try to clarify some things there. But I think there's much for us to learn. Um, 
And so we're, we're going to look at it by diving into Habakkuk's first complaint. I'll remind you that the, the flow of the book is really straightforward. Habakkuk has his first complaint, the Lord answers. Habakkuk is then more troubled by the Lord's answer, and so he has a second question or complaint to which the Lord gives a second longer answer. And then we get the synthesis at the end. Chapter 3 is Habakkuk's psalm, his response. The agitation, the vexation that we see here in chapter 1 will have its answer in chapter 3 as Habakkuk comes through processing everything that has been said. And so we'll even look at that some this morning. But first, let's look at Habakkuk's first complaint. And I think three key words give us direction to the nature of it. He, he, is, he is in anguish. He is um, confused. He is upset. He's grieving. And the words are, how long... Why and therefore, or in the ESV verse 4, so. And they frame the nature of his complaint. Let's, let's read. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Let's begin by looking at how long. He raises the question. This suggests, by the way, he's been praying this way for some time. We pick up when the Lord responds but the implications of how long is, from Habakkuk's perspective, he has been praying, he has been asking, he has been petitioning for some length of time. And what we're dealing with is his repeated and unheeded cries for help. His repeated and unheeded cries for help. At least that's how he frames it. I think the Lord's response will indicate it's not unheeded, but his perspective, his complaint, is it sure looks to him as though the Lord is not listening. How long shall I cry for help and will you not hear? That's troubling. There's, there's two issues troubling Habakkuk, at least. One is what he sees going on around him, and that's not where he starts. Because I think the second issue can be even greater, which is why is God not doing something about it? Why is God not answering my prayer? I think that grief for Habakkuk is greater. It's where he starts it's why I titled this message, Why Does the Lord Not Save? To which I get from the end of verse 2. How long will I cry, shall I cry to you for help and will you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? This is Habakkuk's question. This is what's vexing him. I've been calling on the Lord, God. I've been asking for help. I've been asking for deliverance. I've been asking for salvation. And up to this point, he hasn't answered. How long? Now, one of the things to bear in mind, and I want to get from this, is on the one hand, this text sympathizes, legitimizes our grief. If you struggle with unanswered prayer, if you struggle with petitions to God that seem to go unheard, the very existence of this text, that God preserved this for us, I think should give you some comfort. This is not the unusual experience of God's people. Now, there's an answer to it. That's not the totality. I don't believe Habakkuk is correct that God has not been heeding. But I think it is the case that God understands his children will at times, frequently potentially at times, feel as though their prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, that God is not listening. 
So be comforted in that. God, God has a word for you. God has an answer to give. We're going to see that here. How long? His repeated and unheeded cries for help. Now, ironically, and even as part of the, the synthesis of how to deal with this, that phrase, how long, repeated in the Psalms. You can, you can search through your Bible, get your little software out, type out how long. How long, O oh Lord, how long? But the first time that phrase appears, actually, is the Lord pleading with his people. This feeling of vexation goes both ways. Let me, let me read to you Exodus 16, 28. First time I could find it in the Bible. The Lord said to Moses, how long? Will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? So maybe one of the first things to remember, even as we feel we've been waiting a long time, is that God has voiced the same feeling towards his people. And when we appreciate God's patience and long-suffering, bear that in mind when it seems as though God may be taking a longer time than you would like to respond to your prayer. The first point I might put in. But it's repeated and unheard cries for help. But notice, second, what his desire is. Because I think this is going to form the, 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 the difficulty in this text. What does he want the Lord to do? He's going to lay out the reason he wants the Lord to do it. We start with the complaint, Lord, how long? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to, in your blank, save or deliver or redeem or make safe or rescue. The, the point I'm making is this. What he doesn't want is the Lord to destroy. He's not asking for that. He's asking for deliverance, salvation. How long will I cry to you violence and will you not save? Now, maybe he might envision the Lord's salvation, his deliverance, might involve discipline over the wicked. But there's going to be a contrast between what he's asking for and what the Lord says he's going to do. So that's his, that's his initial part of the complaint. How long? He's been pleading for a long time, and it seems as though the Lord is not listening, the Lord is not responding, and we get what he wants the Lord to do, which is to save. This is similar, in fact, to something Job writes in Job 19.7, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. This is not a unique anguish in Scripture. Second, we get the why question. Why would God do this? And the two things that he's grieved about is why do you make me see iniquity? And that's his grief. Not only is iniquity happening, but it's happening in front of his face. He's witnessing it. He's seeing it around him with his own eyes. He's saying evil take place. And it grieves him. I think there are two ditches on either side of the road as Christians we can fall into. One ditch is to be so heavenly minded that we just ignore the world. After all, Christ is going to come back and he's going to conquer it. And evil men are going to go from bad to worse. And so we just sort of aren't concerned by the evil around us. I don't think that's right. I don't think it's right to harden our hearts and callous ourselves to the evil going around us, the wickedness around us. I think the other ditch is to sort of move in the direction of sort of social gospel. We're going to form a political coalition. We're going to form a group. Not that there can't be some good done at small levels with that. What the biblical picture is a prophet deeply grieved in anguish in prayer to God calling on God to do what only God can do. It doesn't matter who we get in the White House. It doesn't matter who we elect as a senator. Only God can bring about the work we need. 
Now, by all means, vote for righteous people, vote for good candidates. I'm, I'm not speaking against that. But those who respond to evil thinking the solution is something we do, have their sights too low and underestimate the problem. So don't become callous to the evil in the world around you. Let it drive you to prayer like Habakkuk. His grief, why do you make me see iniquity? Jeremiah has a similar complaint. And as we're trying to place, again, the historical setting of this, I think the, the best explanation of the setting would be right at the end of Josiah's reign. Josiah was the last good king of Israel. And after him for three months, Jehoahaz becomes king, and then Jehoiakim becomes king. And these guys are, are no good. They're bad. Idolatry's back um, in the land. I, I think that's probably given everything, trying to harmonize it together, the best fitting. Which means it's even more painful because we've had a period of respite. We've had a period where things looked like it might be getting better, and now, no, they're, they're getting worse. And he is grieving over, in front of his face, this iniquity, this wickedness. Jeremiah 12 says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me and see me and test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. And set them apart for the day of slaughter. So Jeremiah is speaking again to the evil around him that he's seeing. Because I think they're close contemporaries. I think they're close contemporaries. But there's a second why. And that's his vexation. It's troublesome that he has to see the iniquity. But theologically what's most challenging is surely God is seeing it. Surely God is aware of it. Why do you idly look at wrong? And again, that's Habakkuk's perspective. I think we'll see the Lord is not idly looking at wrong. But passages like this make it clear, God's people will at times be tempted to think exactly that. Um, and, and what's difficult with that is the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself at Sinai is a God who acts, a God who is righteous, a God who defends the orphan and the widow. Let me just, let me just read to you Psalm 5. Four through six, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. And I think has, has Habakkuk's thinking, well, surely the God who feels this way about evil would act, would do something. So you're making me see it, and clearly you see it, and you're not doing anything. Why? And that struggle and that pain is real. This passage makes it clear. The Lord answers. Now, the answer gives some correction to Habakkuk. I think some of Habakkuk's insinuations are wrong. The Lord is not idle. The Lord is listening. But there's a place in Scripture to deal with that confusion and that anguish. If, if you've wrestled with that, God has books and chapters of the Bible to help you. Lest you despair lest you surrender your faith. And then finally, we see the, the, the situation of the nation, his nation. So first with the why, his grief, then his vexation, then his nation. And here we get the sort of summary. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. What he's describing, we're going to see, is a top-to-bottom societal collapse of justice, wickedness, evil, injustice, oppression, 
murder, bloodshed, lying, dishonesty, oath-breaking, at everything, every sort of societal evil. And, and what's particularly tragic is this is the covenant nation of God. I love my country. When I see evil around me in my country, I grieve. But for an Israelite, a, na- a nation in covenant with God, a nation, the only nation on earth in the history of the earth that I'm aware of, who God is their God and has entered into a covenant with them. And for that people to be so corrupt has got to be an even worse and more painful experience. He then concludes his complaint with the therefore, the consequence. He wants to know how long, when are you going to answer? And, and why? Why are you not doing something? And why is this going on? Don't you see what's happening? And then he sums it up in verse 5 with the consequence, the therefore, or the so. I'm sorry, in verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. That's strong language. God's law is rendered impotent, at least practically. I mean, we know in one perspective, God's word is never powerless and void. But as it was supposed to govern the people, as the people at Sinai agreed, we will live by this law. This will be our law of our land. Is the nation of Israel applying, obeying, keeping God's law? No, they're not. And so God's law, you can read about what should be happening. I mean, that's got to be part of the grief. You can read on the pages of the Pentateuch. This is what they're supposed to be doing. This is what they're doing. It's as though God's law is rendered impotent and powerless. The wicked overthrow the righteous. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. And that's the indication of the absolute top-to-bottom societal and systemic corruption going on. It's not that there's much violence and there's much injustice. It's so much that he can say justice never goes forth. All the judgments are wicked and corrupt. That's the norm. That's the norm. Consequently, the wicked overpower the righteous. There apparently still is some righteous remnant in Israel, but they're the few. They're outnumbered. They're surrounded by the wicked. And then he states it again. So justice goes forth perverted. Justice goes forth perverted. And again, you read through the Pentateuch. The Lord delights in justice. Justice and only justice shall you do. He bounds in steadfast love and righteousness and justice. I think what Habakkuk's saying is, Lord, I, I think I have your heart. I think from your word. I, I know how you feel about these things. And I know that I'm pulling my hair out. I know that I am at my wits end. How can you calmly and idly sit by, ignore my prayers, do nothing? That's, that is the nature of his complaint. I definitely get some things wrong. But understand the Bible, this book, this is written so that those of us who struggle with such questions, as you see the news, as you look at the world around you, might have an answer. So that is Habakkuk's first complaint. Don't don't avoid the danger of numbing yourself to what's going on around you. Because that can be the challenge for us. It's just so bad, it's so ugly that we just, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to, all going to go to heaven, we'll worry about it, it'll be better then. Don't, don't do that. Don't anesthetize your heart. And take your prayer to the Lord. This brings us to the Lord's first response. And we see it in two parts. This proclamation of judgment beginning. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. 
wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Um, so first, I want you to notice that the Lord here reverses Habakkuk's complaint. He reverses Habakkuk's complaint. How so? You notice, I, you notice up in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? That's part of his complaint. You're making me see things and you're looking at things. The Lord turns around, why don't you look and see? And, that, and that's intentional. And the, the look and see are plurals, which is why I wrote in... Um, in the blank here next to it, you all look and see. Or if you're from the south, you all look and see. Which again makes it clear, this, is, this goes beyond just Habakkuk. The Lord is going to tell him in chapter 2 to write this down. But even here we see God in answering Habakkuk is answering a host of people behind him. He's answering Israel. Um, Paul cites this verse in Acts 13. We're not, we don't have time to turn there. He's, he's answering the wicked and the righteous alike. His answer is for all of those asking this question. His answer is for us. Look among the nations, see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. See, contrary to what Habakkuk has insinuated or even overtly said, the Lord is not idle or unconcerned. If I could sort of summarize the Lord's response it would be something like, Habakkuk, if you're insinuating you care more about this than me, you're absolutely wrong. If you were to understand what I'm about to do, you wouldn't comprehend its magnitude. God is more concerned than Habakkuk. God is more grieved than Habakkuk. God is more incensed than Habakkuk. And God has not been idle. He has not been unaware. And he is not unconcerned. I am doing a work I am, not I will, I am. He's in the middle of doing something. It's just that it hasn't got to the stage where Habakkuk's going to see it yet. But he's, he's been doing it. We're going to find what he's been doing is raising up a nation, and that takes some time. And even though the Lord does it quickly, that takes some time. But he's already in the act of doing it. The Lord's response has already begun. The armies of Babylon have not yet arrived at Jerusalem. But that doesn't mean that the Lord is inactive or uncaring. When Habakkuk grasps what the Lord is doing, it's not underaction that will be provoking him, but the magnitude, the scope of what he's doing. He is not idle or unconcerned. His work is terrible. Terrible. I mean, in the true sense, like that which brings terror. The Lord emphasizes this. You would not believe it if told. The, the magnitude of my work, the Lord says, that I'm doing is so great, you won't believe it. You won't believe it if told. He's doing it in their day. So that's the proclamation. He is acting. He has heard. He does care. He is incensed. He is in agreement with Habakkuk that this evil is awful. That's the first point you can get as you're wrestling with evil yourself and that around you. Whatever is going on, whatever it may look like the Lord is doing, he does see, he does care, and he does so more than even you do at true evil. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb because he loved him. He is not idle or unconcerned. And then we go to his instrument of judgment, his instrument of judgment, the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is, is another name for the Babylonians. Another name for the Babylonians. So quickly, we're going to get seven points about them. The first, he is raising them to power 
quickly. He is raising them to power quickly. Why quickly? Well, look in verse 5. In your days. This is going to happen in Habakkuk's lifetime. This isn't something far out there. Something's happened soon. And you've got to understand that in Habakkuk's day, Babylon was known of. They go all the way back to Abraham. But they were never a superpower. The, the world Habakkuk lives in, there are two major powers in the region. There's Assyria. The Assyrians, after all, were the ones who came and captured the ten northern tribes and took them away. And there's Egypt. Those, those are the two big powers. Those are the regional superpowers. So much so that um, in 2 Kings 17, we, we hear about why Assyria came in. And it's because, again, against him came Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea, the final king of the north, became his vassal and paid him tribute. He paid tributes to superpowers. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered tribute to the king, offered and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So what happens is Hashea is supposed to be giving tribute and homage to Assyria, and instead he tries to make a deal with Egypt because they're the other superpower. The king of Assyria learns of this, and he comes and snatches them up. So those are the superpowers. That's who Judah was aware of. And so if God was going to announce judgment by a nation, surely it would be Assyria or Egypt. Part of what makes this announcement of judgment so unbelievable is it's the Chaldeans. Who were they? I mean, we know who they are, but it, this would be about as strange as suggesting um, a prophecy that, that Mongolia was going to rise up, throw, overthrow China, the Soviet Union, and America. I mean, because we live in a world probably with three superpowers, two and a half, something like that. And, and picture just some nation who you know very little of, you know they exist, being told they're going to rise up quickly in your lifetime and overthrow the regional superpowers. That's what the Lord is saying he's doing. You know, I, I, was, I was surprised in my study because I know how ancient Babylon is, but they really only have a spot in the sun for a very short time. I'll, I'll read a little on the history of Babylon, how quickly they did rise to power. Nebuchadnezzar II was the son and the crown prince of Nabopolassar, um, who with the Medes destroyed the Assyrian Empire. So, so Nebuchadnezzar's father forms an alliance with the Medes and cast off the Assyrians. And then the final blow, and this is recorded in Scripture, takes place at Carchemish. Pharaoh Mecho goes up to fight with the remnants of the Assyrian army, and Nebuchadnezzar, the, the general and the prince, defeats Egypt at Carchemish. And in that swift motion, the two regional superpowers, one is defeated utterly and the other is in retreat. The other is in retreat. But in, but in Habakkuk's name, the last word on Babylon was they were actually somewhat friendly. In 2 Kings 20, remember Hezekiah gets sick and he asks for more time from the Lord? Well, in that period, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that Hezekiah had been sick. They weren't some big threatening nation. They were far away. They'd have to get through Assyria first. And the last we heard from them, they were relatively sympathetic. Now, Hezekiah showed them the temple and the gold. That was a mistake. But, but Babylon? Babylon's going to be a power? Yeah, they, they are. They are. He's raising them to power quickly. I'll read to you um, Jeremiah 46, 1 through 2. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations about Egypt, 
concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. So if I'm right at picturing this at the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign, four years into Jehoiakim's reign, Carchemish happens, Egypt's defeated, and all of a sudden, the, the stage is clear. Assyria, utterly defeated, Egypt in retreat, and Babylon just starts gobbling up the entire area. And the Lord predicts it, and he says he's doing this, he's raising them up. And then he goes on to describe their character. We've got to move quickly here. We have communion, and we, and we have another song to sing, but let's read. Behold, I'm raising the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Why, why so emphasize the character of Babylon? He's, he wants to communicate to Habakkuk the terribleness, the greatness, the ferocity of his instrument of judgment. Habakkuk has insinuated that God is uncaring. Habakkuk has insinuated that the Lord God is, is, is underreacting by doing no action. And so the Lord God highlights and emphasizes the scope, the breadth, the terror, the fierceness of the judgment he brings. And of course, that's not what Habakkuk was hoping for. Habakkuk was not hoping for this type of national, all-inclusive judgment. We'll, we'll see in chapter 2, the righteous will live by faith. They'll live in Babylon by faith, but they'll live by faith. But this judgment will sweep away the righteous and the unrighteous alike. That's not what he was asking for. What do we learn about the Babylonians? They are bitter and rash, that bitter and hasty nation. Um, they, they act quickly. And most of what's emphasized here is their fierceness, their ferocity, their pride, and the speed with which they will move. They will conquer, next, all surrounding lands. They will conquer all surrounding lands. They march through the breadth of the earth. They're, they're going to have a large domain. They are brutal and autonomous. Brutal and autonomous. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from them. And I think what's meant by that, their justice and their dignity go forth from them. They are a law to themselves. They're accountable to nobody. Their dignity, their law comes from them. They are the source and standard of it. They're not accountable to anything. They do things their way. They are swift and they are powerful. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. In, in a matter of less than two decades, they're going to go from nobodies to ruling the region. Their, their conquest will be swift and rapid. 
And finally, and possibly even worse, they're worshipers of themselves. I think it's notable, verse 11 here. They sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own God is their might. The Lord God making it clear, the people that he is raising up to smash and discipline his people are not a righteous people. They're not a godly people. They're pagans. They are self-worship. Their self-esteem is off the charts. They worship their own strength. That gets repeated again. You can see, look in, in, in verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, which is a way of saying his net, his power to gather and capture. That's what he sacrifices to. That's what he worships. He makes offerings to his dragnet, their military might, their power. That's their God. Which, of course, is exactly what we see in Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, right? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar pictures this perfectly in Daniel chapter 4. The end of the 12 months, remember Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream and Daniel interpreted it and said, you're going you're to go eat some grass. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? There's somebody who worships his own strength. So we even get here part of the seed of their downfall, but this has, again, got to be really difficult and challenging for Habakkuk. That God would bring such a fierce people and such a wicked people to destroy and take captive. They will dispossess and take captives. Now, this is in keeping exactly what he said he'd do in Deuteronomy. You can read those references in Deuteronomy. The Lord at Sinai, when they ratified the covenant, and again in Deuteronomy, when they re-ratified the covenant, made it clear, if you persist in rebelling long enough, I will take you from the land. This is not capricious or arbitrary. This is completely in keeping with what he said he would do. But how terrible it must be for Habakkuk to hear that now, finally, the Lord is going to do what he promised he would do so many years earlier. So I want to take a moment or two before our closing song and try to, what do we, what do we learn from this? What do we, what do we to take away from this? And let me give you the final blanks here on that little box at the bottom. And that's this. The Lord sees and cares. Know that. Whatever is going on, whatever the answer is, whatever vexes you, it's not that the Lord doesn't see or that he doesn't care. He cares deeply. He sees all. Now take comfort in knowing that scripture again and again and again, many Psalms speak to this, anticipate and understand God's people will be tempted to think, why aren't you acting? Why don't you care? Why don't you do something? If that's how you feel, God has words for you. You're not alone. But hear those words. And the words are, the first part of the answer is he does see, he does care. It's not, whatever the solution is, it's not his lack of caring. Or his lack of sight. He will act. But as Habakkuk learns, not always as we might desire. What did Habakkuk want? Lord, why, why don't you save? Why don't you save? How long do I have to call on you and you not save? And the Lord says, it's time for judgment. It's time for me to do what I said I would do in Deuteronomy. Now, there is good news for Habakkuk. There is in this book. There's, there's, there's words of comfort about the restoration of Israel. But just before we move on in our next message, just sometimes God's people pray and ask for the Lord to do something. 
And not for a lack of concern, not for a lack of caring. He does here. He does care. But, but he has a wisdom and a knowledge and a plan that exceeds ours. Turn to chapter 3 just briefly. To show you some of the synthesis. Where Habakkuk ends up after this. Chapter 3. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And then we get a back of synthesis and resolution. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Which is to say, though everything I want and everything I think that I need to survive and live and prosper not come to me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God, God is going to judge his people. He is going to do what is right. And it's hard for Habakkuk to hear. And there are questions even raised by this that his next, his next complaint brings up, which is, Lord, how can you work with an evil people? How does that work? But just for now, just look at the fact and understand, God cares, he sees, but, and sometimes he happily and gladly does answer our prayers with, with yes, and we're invited to come like children going, Daddy, please, I need this, I need that, and Jesus makes it clear, do, do keep on doing that, don't, don't give up in prayer, but also do understand the Bible is explicit, there are times where God's answer is not what we wanted, and he's good, and he's righteous, in what he does, even as hard as it may be for us to accept. And if that, if that is difficult to hear, I would remind you of the many reasons you can trust God in that, but not least of which is it was precisely because the Lord did not answer Jesus' prayer the way Jesus asked, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass. And how difficult and hard it must have been that no, the cup cannot move on. You must drink it. Precisely because the Lord God did not answer that prayer that way. We are saved. Frequently, it is through the sufferings of his people as modeled perfectly by the suffering of his son that God works his greatest works and acts of salvation. God is no sadist. He does not willingly afflict his children, but he crushed his son that he might save us. So as those who benefit from, I, I am thankful that the father did what was right and good and did not find a way for the cup to pass. I believe you are too then ought we not to trust him when we pray and we ask for things 
And in his goodness and in his wisdom, he has a different plan. Let us rejoice in the God of our salvation.